we are still in Acts. I dared Jeremy that we weren't going to get through it, and he started handing out chapters, full chapters. So we're not going to get through this in 2019, and he said, hold my beer. We're doing it. <laughs> so we are going a chapter at a time. Next week, we're going to hear from Caleb Harlan. I'm excited for that. Caleb is a very gifted communicator. Um, and uh, just uh, last week, we did uh, chapter 11, and it ends, if you remember, uh, with uh, Saul and Barnabas collecting a gift and headed to Jerusalem. Um, so last week we started in Caesarea and then we went to Jerusalem with uh, Peter and then we went to Antioch with Barnabas and Barnabas went to Tarsus and got Saul. This is, uh, if you have a map in your copy of scripture, like this is where it gets fun to try and see where all everybody went. And now we go back to Jerusalem here. Um, and they make it, uh, Saul and Barnabas make it back from Jerusalem to Antioch at the end, the very last verse of chapter 12, which we're going to do today, and they even bring a new guy along. And this chapter is, is funny, and it's fascinating, um, and it's kind of like the best race in track and field events. Um, well, the best event in a track and field event is obviously pole vaulting. That's the funnest, and that's why I did that one. Set all kind of awards or records in high school. I broke the most poles. I caused the most false starts with those breaking of poles, which sound like a bra uh, gun going off. But the, f the best race is the 4 by 100 relay, where you have the four fastest guys sprinting 100 meters, and they run with what? A baton. And that's where it gets funny because when you're running full speed and someone else is running full speed, you have to make a clean handoff. And if you drop the baton, you're disqualified. And if you fumble with it and you don't drop it but you retain it but you've, you look like you're having a fit, um, you lose momentum and you, you, you lose the race typically. Well, this is the handoff. Chapter 12 of Acts is the handoff where we've followed Peter for the most part for 11 chapters. Peter now hands the baton to Saul. And from chapter 13 on, it's really the story of the gospel bearing fruit in the Greco-Roman world through the leadership of Saul, who becomes Paul. Now that's where we're watching here. Peter has run his course and after this chapter, the spotlight shifts. And it's as if God, knowing that he's going to inspire this scripture, knows that Peter will fade into the background. He gives Peter this amazing finish, this crazy finish. And that's what I invite you to read with me and pray. Uh, Acts chapter 12, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. 
Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, you can feel the tension rising. Peter was sleeping. What tension? Between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and centuries before the old, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out. And went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. Now, when Peter came to himself, he said, uh, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other's name was Mark, <clears throat> where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door at the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him, and they were amazed, but motioning to them, with his hand, zip it, shh, to be silent. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter, and after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, and took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bearing, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, that it is living and active, that it is, in fact, sharper than a two-edged sword. And we need that word to pierce us this morning. We need it to um, expose us in our self-righteousness or in our sinful fear of man, to expose us in our anxieties and our confusion, to lay us open and lay us bare, and then we need it to heal us, to sew us up clean and neat and stand us aright and, and embody truth and grace in us by the Spirit as you send us out to live this word 
in the world. Would you do that again this morning and receive the thanks and praise of a grateful people? Amen. Now, Keller says of this passage, Keller is uh, the retired minister, Tim Keller, Redeemer, PCA in New York City. Keller says, um, this is a difficult passage because you have two different apostles that get arrested by the same Herod. And, you know, though the, we don't find out that that same church that was praying for Peter was necessarily praying for James, we can assume that they would have been. And so you have the same holy saints, same devoted church praying for two apostles captured and one is set free and one is beheaded. What do we do with that? We humble ourselves under this recognition that God is wise, God is gracious, God is generous and kind and he can do no evil. So whatever he does is wise, gracious, kind, good, and generous. Sometimes that means his people get killed. Sometimes it means they get set free. That is the overarching difficulty of this passage. The unexpected and unbelievable gospel, which comes to us and opens our eyes and changes our hearts and lives, and it does it in a way that we don't expect. When we receive that gospel, when we say, God bore the punishment for my sin, he was killed, he was separated from the God that I had been separated from so that I might by faith be woven into his resurrection life. That's an amazing story, and we think, well, if God would do all of that, if he would go through that hell on earth, Surely now in the resurrection we'll be protected. And we're not. We're not protected. We're not protected from death, not protected from hardship. And that's the first thing that we see here. Herod has snatched up the apostle James, the son of Zebedee, brother to the gospel and epistle writer John. I am along with many others, it says, who belonged to the church. The church in Jerusalem had grown to expect persecution from religious leadership, but this is the first state-sponsored persecution that they've had to endure. And in that respect, it matches the story of Jesus before Pilate. Now, you'll hear a lot of the names in Scripture uh, repeat, but they're different people. We even have that in this passage. You have James, the son of Zebedee, who is captured and beheaded, but then you, when Peter is rescued, he says, tell this account to James. Well, that's James, the brother of Jesus. They use the same names, kind of like the PCA church. You have uh, Christ, Presbyterian. You can have Redeemer, Presbyterian. Uh, you can have Covenant, we only have about five or six names for PCA churches. You get about five or six names. You have John, the brother of James, but then you have this other John who's also called Mark, John Mark. He's the one who uh, flees in the garden and the guy grabs his cloak and he just goes streaking off into the night. This is John Mark. This is who we see here. But Herod is another name that gets recirculated 
a lot. The Herod that shows up in Luke's gospel is Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great. But the Herod in Acts chapter 12 is Herod Agrippa the first. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. If you looked back in Luke chapter 23, verses 10 through 12, you'll see Christ in relationship to Jewish religious authority, Jewish regional authority, and Roman provincial authority. This is what Luke 23, verse 10 through 12 says, The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. Verse 11, And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back, sent Jesus back to Pilate. Verse 12, And Herod and Pilate, became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Jesus has enemies that are more religious than him, if such a thing could be said. But he also has enemies on the political spectrum as well. And these two enemies of Christ despise each other, but they despise Jesus so much that they become friends. This is the most... I don't know how to best do it, but this is, this, this is like the most liberal progressive Democrat and the most hardline Tea Party prepper. They both despise this Christ so much. This is a sloppy illustration that they become besties. They go on trips to the beach together out of their hatred for Jesus. They have no business being in league with each other, but they both despise Christ and his claims so much that they become friends. And by the time we make it to Acts chapter 12, we're actually on our fifth Herod. Now this Herod was sent to Rome as a child and educated in the systems and the ways of Roman rulership. This Herod was friends with Caligula, had a former classmate, Claudius, who became emperor after Caligula. And so the combination of official authority of the Jews of the region, coupled with his deep Roman connections, made for a strained relationship between Herod's court and the religious leadership. Because the Jewish, the Sanhedrin, looked at the Roman uh, leader, which would have been Pilate, and his subsidiary, this Herod, as antithetical to uh, Jewish rule in the Jewish state. Does that make sense? So even though Herod was a Jew by birth, he was uh, Benedict Arnold. He had, he had abandoned the cause and he was just a figurehead for this other squad, this other team. So when this Herod, who was used to the animosity of the, the Jewish populace and the religious leadership, when Herod saw that the arrest and the state-sponsored murder of James pleased the Jews, those Jews who were always making his life difficult, when Herod saw, oh, this pleased, I killed him for my own sake, but they're happy with this? Great, there's so few things I love doing more than killing people. So he snatches up a bunch of others as well because if some is good, more is better. If James's death leads to happiness, perhaps Peter's will as well. 
And the way that we see Herod uh, kill James with the sword, that's one way, uh, one tip of the hat. And then also the way he assigns four squads of soldiers to guard Peter. Those are nods, are subtle nods of, in a sense, to the depth of his Roman training. So a squad of soldiers was made up of four trained killers. Two would be chained to the prisoner and two would guard the door. And he had four of them, so four times four, you carry the one, bring it over, that's 16. 16 special forces operators to guard one raggedy fisherman. Each squad was assigned a six-hour shift, so the prisoner was never left unguarded. Herod and his men followed the recipe for success to a T, and the church and her leaders were in grave peril But peril is where the church thrives, which is something the church has to relearn every few centuries. Following Jesus leads us to the cross, which is terrifying. But we're people of resurrection hope. We can never forget that. When we forget that we're people of resurrection hope, we get so terrified of death that we blend in with the culture We give up the distinctives of the gospel. And so every once in a while, every few centuries, the Lord sends peril to his church to cause her to desperately pray and seek his face. And the Lord is always at work restoring and reforming his church. Our peril is always overwhelmed by hope of life with Christ. And so any sort of Christian message, and there are many, Turn your TV on, and if you see someone claiming to be a spokesperson for the Christian faith, you can almost always be sure that they don't understand it and what they're preaching is heresy. Any sort of Christian message that removes danger, difficulty, trial, and suffering has abandoned the gospel. The unexpected and unbelievable gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't shield us from pain. It doesn't shield us even from death in this life. That's part of Christ as Messiah. That's part of what got him killed by the religious elite. If Jesus Christ, God uh, in the flesh, had come and as he grew up, if he had gone out to raise bannermen to take on the Roman government, the Sanhedrin would have thrown their lot in with him and said, let's get him, brother, come on. But because Jesus came preaching grace, came preaching truth, came preaching that even the religious elite were filled with sin, they killed him for it. God took on flesh to free us from something worse than the Romans and to reclaim a land for us far larger than Palestine. Palestine. There's a lake in Texas called Palestine. It always throws me off. And he came and suffered to do just that. And in his coming and suffering, he left us a well-worn path to follow. We shouldn't give in to religious pressure any more than we should yield to governmental threats. This message of a risen king and eternal abundant life goes through a valley of death where we are not protected from difficulty, or from hardship. But Christ walks with us through that valley. Because the Lord is risen, we are not left in captivity, even though we face hardship. 
not left in captivity. If there was a a long-running, made-for-TV account of the New Testament, the middle portion of Acts chapter 12 would be the most ridiculous sitcom. Peter, about to face his own execution, is sawing logs. I think of maybe like Bob Newhart, someone that could really embody not caring Peter doesn't care, and he's about to be destroyed, and he, I imagine him sort of chained to these guards, just, just needing my CPAP machine and rolling over, and they're like, we're going to kill you before we get to kill you if you don't shut up. When I was transferring my credentials years ago from the Presbytery of the Southwest to North Texas Presbytery, I was getting grilled by men skeptical of my positions and trying to unearth my real views by catching me in a misstep, which is what we do in Presbytery. We try and trick our brothers. It's so mean. It's so evil. Um, Welcome to the PCA. A friend of mine came up after I had been sweating bullets for 45 minutes answering my questions and what I believed and um, setting their doubts uh, at bay and promising them that I wasn't a a heresy. I passed transferring in by like 75 to 4, so it wasn't a big, it wasn't close at all, Uh, but this friend of mine, very successful minister, he's pastoring a huge church back in Tennessee now. He came up and he said, man, I was more nervous for your transfer exam than I was for my ordination exam, and as nerve-wracking as it was in the moment, I knew the situation. I was never really bothered because I am firmly committed to what makes us PCA. I knew that I didn't have anything to hide, so I wasn't nervous at all. I just don't look like a normal Presbyterian. (laughs) I transferred in in shorts and flip-flops. The rest of these jokers had coats and ties on, but it was July in Texas, and I was like, no, that's nuts. Jesus doesn't make us wear coats and ties in July in Texas. So I passed. It wasn't a problem, but Just like my friend, I'm more nervous for Peter than Peter is nervous for himself. Peter is literally resting in the fact that Jesus is who he said he was and will do what he said. And he will accomplish all that he promised. And Peter's so sure of it, uh, uh, kill me or don't, I'm taking a nap, you guys. Whatevs. Back in chapter 5, we see that the church was making earnest prayer for Peter to God and here in verse 7 the prayer is answered and that's convicting to me you know about five weeks ago I gave uh, we distributed a little uh, prayer card I have mine in my Bible here that um, uh, to, to pray for people that I'm praying for I have a couple of family members I have a couple of friends from the gym and then I have a couple of my neighbors names written on there and I do pray for them every day but you know what If any of those six people came to faith in Christ, I'd be shocked that God acted to answer my prayer. Shameful. Shameful that I, I can't speak for you, um, will pray for miraculous intervention and doubt while I'm praying for it. I pray that the Lord convinces me that he continues to act and answer his people's prayer, that he's more gracious than I could dare to believe. But he does answer prayers. We all affirm that. We all believe that. But then we don't at the same time, just like the 
the church praying in Acts 12. An angel shows up, light fills the room, and he struck Peter, it says. Now that word struck is hilarious. It's the same Greek word used for the way God strikes his enemies down. The way he strikes Herod, he struck Peter. It's a violent blow. Pataxas, a strong, violent blow. And the Western church, as we translated this from Greek um, into Latin, we changed the word from pataxas to nuxas, nudged him. The angel just, hey, Peter, get up, little buddy. No, the Greek, the version of this is that the, the angel's like, boom, Peter, get up, we got to go. Which is great. The angel smacks Peter awake, and in a snap, the chains are off. Peter, in a daze, probably used to being struck unexpectedly by his guards or others um, and given commands. Peter just does. He's struck and told to get up. And so Peter's like, well, I was sleeping, but now I'm awake. Okay, I'll get dressed. Not realizing what's happening. He thinks he's dreaming, in a sense all the way past an iron gate that unlocks itself and opens. They make a turn and the angel disappears and that's when Peter comes to himself. One of my favorite things, I think I've told you this before, one of my favorite uh, things to do for fun is to read clandestine novels. I think in a different life I could have been a spy. I blend in seamlessly into any world I step into. I fancy myself a spy, so I read spy novels, like the Jason Bourne stuff, or any, I mean, it's garbage, but it's fun. It's just candy, right? It's bad, it's not good writing, but it's fun and it's exciting. And so after seminary, Tiffany sat me down and said, okay, look, you're becoming a theological dork. You need to read less of these nerdy books that no one understands and read books that people read so that you're normal because I want to be married to a normal guy. <laughs> so she bought me a stack of spy novels and I mowed through them that first summer after seminary. And you know how sometimes when you immerse yourself in a theme or a story, you, you can have dreams about certain things? So in this season of life, I was deep in sleep, and my enemies had our home in Dallas surrounded. They had breached my defenses. All of my booby traps were, were, were unknotted, untied. They, they got through them. I had my family in this dream gathered in a room, and the, the enemies, probably Russians, maybe North Koreans, who knows, but they were about to break into this room and face the wrath of my spy kung fu. At that moment, not in a dream, but in real life, Shaylee, our sweet daughter, our three-year-old daughter, standing at the foot of the bed, was tugging at the blanket, trying to get mom to wake up and help her with this nightmare. And as the blankets begin to pull down in the dream world of Jason Bobo, where he has spy kung fu under wraps, I <laughs> leapt up in real life. And I had my fist clenched and drawn, and I let out a mighty yawp. As I was going to destroy little Russian Shaley. <laughs> but I realized right at the last minute that this is your daughter. Don't harm. <laughs> and I, I had left, actually. So instead of punching her, I just grabbed her and barrel rolled onto the floor. 
Tiffany has sat up at this point and is trying her best not to wet the bed. <laughs> As she says, what are you doing? And, I, and I'm explaining to her, they were about to get us all, but I saved us. They, they didn't get the files. <laughs> she doesn't understand what's going on. Peter would say in that moment of clenched fists, rearing back, yelling, that when I didn't attack my daughter, that I came to myself. I recognized that my dream was a fabrication. It was, in fact, all made up. The difference was mine was made up. Peter, as he walks around that corner, the angel disappears, realizes, oh, I wasn't dreaming. This is all real. And now, like a late-night TV commercial for a kitchen gadget, I get to tell you, but wait, there's more. Peter, wrapped in his cloak, makes his way to his brother's mom's house. It's late at night, but many are gathered and praying for him. Remember, the gospel is unexpected and unbelievable. He quietly gives the secret Christian knock, only to find a friend run away. Rhoda eventually comes back, despite everyone telling her it's not what's there. She got so excited she didn't know what to do. Peter, I'm sure at some point that night when he got in and got alone with Rhoda was like, man, I thought you were going to rat me out. I thought I was going back to prison when you ran away. And Rhoda, so overwhelmed with joy at, at God's acting to display glory that she lost her mind and ran back in. Whether the hardship that comes to you is death or imprisonment, or family strife, or personal struggle. The unexpected and unbelievable gospel message is that we are not left in captivity, not ultimately. We who have been set free from sin and eternal judgment will ultimately be set free from every power that holds you, whether it's addiction, whether it's an orientation, whether it's persecution, we will be set free and in being set free, we are set free to give glory to God. But we are not set free to steal glory. And notice this, that Peter could have used this miraculous event, this encounter, to gain greater influence for himself, either within the church at Jerusalem or gain greater support for his ministry to the Gentiles. But his parting words to the gathered prayer warriors serves as a powerful contrast to the little section that follows. Peter says in verse 17, tell these things to James. James, the converted younger brother of Jesus Christ. Tell these things to James and the leaders of the church. Tell them to the brothers. And then Peter, like the angel, disappears into the night. Peter would not steal glory that belonged to God alone. Herod, however, has no problem with it. He orders the guards put to death, and he goes for a little R&R &R on the beach at Caesarea Maritima. That's where his favorite palace was. It's where his great-grandpappy's theater was located. And as he takes home in this, or takes his rest in this palace, Tyre and Sidon, these culturally Greek cities that Herod had placed an embargo against, they came to him and pled for peace, pled for an open border and trade for food. And he made sure that the meeting would happen during a festival in honor of the emperor, his close personal friend, Claudius, 
so that he could dress up in a show of power. And Herod spoke eloquently and impressively, and the gathered crowds praised him with glory fit only for God, and Herod embraced it. And the way Luke records it in Acts 12, we might expect that Herod dropped dead on the spot. But Josephus records the same event that Herod died of a worm. Uh, it says he suffered um, brutally for five days before dying uh, these stomach pains caused by worms. This death, uh, this ancient death was thought among the most horrible ways to die. And Paul Tripp says this regarding God's glory. The doctrine of God's glory encompasses the greatness, beauty, and perfection of all that he is. In everything that he is and in everything that he does, God is greater than human description. Every attribute and action of God is stunningly beautiful in every way. Each characteristic of God and every accomplishment from his hand is totally perfect. That's what we mean when we speak about God's glory. That's really good. He goes on then to talk about our problem with glory as sinners. He says this, but sin corrupted the original design, and now you and I have the desire to live for ourselves instead of living for the glory of God. We try and steal that glory for ourselves. We demand to be in the center of our world. We take credit for what only God could produce. We want to be sovereign. We want others to worship us. We establish our kingdom and punish those who break our laws. We tell ourselves that we're entitled to what we don't deserve, and we complain when we don't get whatever it is we want. The way Tripp describes this world today is it's a glory disaster. And there's a sense in which all of us, each of us, have to be on the lookout against ourselves for the temptation to follow Herod's path instead of Peter's path, Jesus' path for that matter. Jesus, among all his great faithfulness in our sinful world, has, as maybe his greatest example for the church, the fastest reaction of pointing back glory to God the Father. Anytime someone comes to Christ with praise, he points straight to his Father. Faster than any of us. He accomplishes that feat for us, and he leaves us that example to follow. Glory belongs to God. And the expected and unbelievable gospel truth is that we find ourselves most alive and most at peace as we deflect glory that comes our way back to God the Father to gaze on Him and not on ourselves. So despite all the action, the adventure, the comedy, and the drama of Acts 12, it wraps up with the simple plodding beauty of verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Do your worst, Herods of the world. God will bless the world as his word goes forth. It will not return to him void. Despite the turmoil, upheavals, trials, and struggles of today, it's still doing the same. God is still sending his word forth, and it's still coming back bearing fruit. Jesus is still building his church, and damn the gates of hell to where they belong. They will not stand. The spirit keeps kicking down those gates, and the word goes forth and bears fruit. 
And as we look at the very end of the chapter, we find Barnabas and Saul walking John Mark into Antioch, back from Jerusalem. Who knows how and where the word of God might continue to increase and multiply from here. But we know this much. Hardship always awaits all those faithful to the gospel. We know this, that none of us will be left in ultimate captivity. That God in Christ has acted definitely and will set us free. And we know this, that the way of following Christ will be a struggle to give God the glory that he's due, moment by moment, for his amazing work in Christ. This unexpected and unbelievable Savior, and it's in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit that he acts. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it rings true. It's so graphic and unbelievable and unexpected that it must be true. We pray that you would so work the grace and faith of Christ into us that we would be those not expected to miss out on hardship, but like Christ would set our face like flint and walk to the faithful suffering you have for your church. We pray that you would work courage in us, and that we would be refreshed and reminded again and again that no matter what happens in this life, what we have secured is in the next eternal joy, comfort, peace, and life. Remind us that we will be set free. And remind us again, cause us to despise glory in ourselves and give us great joy as we give you back glory again and again as you bless your people. Train our hearts not to retain glory as a reservoir, but to send it forth in abundant praise back to you, our great King and Savior. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Would you stand?